It's no secret that one of our boasts in this land where sport is king is the fact that we have many champions who have excelled at what they do. I don't need to name many of them. If you started with Donald Bradman in cricket and Dawn Fraser in swimming, Ash Barty in tennis and Herb Elliott in track and field, you've probably got a starting list that you could work with and expand. We Aussies not only have a tendency to produce great sporting champions, but sadly that strong tendency remains to put them on pedestals and effectively worship them as well. It's nothing unusual. Virtually every country has their own sporting idol of some sort because somehow in each culture the person who is best at sport or singing or making money or acting or whatever you name it always grabs the hearts and the minds of the people, the person who is best. Now in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is not writing about succeeding at your chosen sport, not at all. But he is urging his readers to strive to do something that sportsmen and women might do. Twice in the verses before us, Paul urged the Thessalonians to continue to do what they are already doing, but to do it more and more. What was it that they had been doing? Well, let's just consider a fact that here were a group of believers who had come out of the darkest idolatry, who had been thoroughly converted by the gospel, who had begun to show the fruits of faith and hope and love in their daily interactions with one another and were evidently showing to the world and to the culture in which they lived the reality of the transforming power of that gospel seen in their love for each other and their love for their neighbours. Last week we thought about that, didn't we? That is, by the unique quality of Christian love that the gospel is not only taught, but the gospel is seen and the gospel progresses. It progresses through love. And these believers seem to have reached a gold standard in their witness for Christ. They were not however, meant to be and we are not meant to be content with the level that we've reached. But according to Paul, we are meant to be and we are taught and encouraged to be doing this more and more. Always striving to do better. Not in the sense of doing better at sport or studies or making money, or anything like that, but better and better at walking with God and testifying to the saving grace of God. So in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4, Paul spells out some pretty particular details for these believers that they in turn might know what was expected of them in the way they walk. That's our theme this morning, the way you walk, the way you live out the gospel. 
Now walking is a favourite pastime of mine and of many of us and all of us are used to getting the idea of getting from A to B on foot. In Vanuatu they used to call that Adam's truck. You know, that's how Adam got around, on his feet. There was nothing else to get around on but Adam's truck. And so that might throw you for a moment, but think about it. Yes, of course, on foot. But it's also true to say that the Christian life begins with a step of faith and continues as a walk of faith. In fact, as Paul refers to walking so often, it must be one of his favourite themes. Take, for example, Ephesians 4 and 5, which call us to walk worthy, to walk in a way different from the world, to walk in love, as we've heard this morning, to walk as children of light. The whole idea of walking is one that implies progress and demands perseverance and strength and endurance. And you could look at the passage before us this morning and show that in it Paul deals with three main topics, sexual immorality, verses 3 to 8, brotherly love, verses 9 to 10, and attitudes about work, verses 11 to 12, but if you look more carefully, the three main topics are not just random topics, they are topics that Paul addresses under one unifying theme. And that one unifying theme is the way we walk. He wants us to walk in a godly way. He wants us to have godly behaviour in these three areas of life, in our personal lives, verses 3 to 8 in relation to the family of believers, verses 9 to 10, and in relation to those outside the family of believers, verses 11 to 12. In each of these areas, Paul is concerned with godly living and walking, walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, especially given the return of Jesus, which has been his constant undercurrent theme in part, which will receive much fuller treatment next week when we come to those next few verses. Let's think about these three things then this morning. First, in relation to our personal lives, verses 1 to 8 tell us to walk in holiness. To walk in holiness. And they do so in the context where the moral climate of the Roman Empire was far from being ideal. Immorality was a way of life and thanks to the institution of slavery, a people had plenty of time, leisure time, to indulge in their immoral pleasures. Enter into that world a group of believers who wanting to reflect the holiness of the God who had called them and the God who had saved them, who were determined to live the sort of life that would reflect who their father was, that was never going to be an easy call. Temptations to sin were all around them. Standards were low, as they have become again in our world. It was hard for these believers to walk that narrow path of purity in an impure world. So it's no surprise, is it, that a good deal of what the apostles tell us in their letters concern living out the gospel, 
not because living the Christian life would save them, but because these believers were saved and needed to show the world what being a Christian was all about. So with this call to live a godly life, Paul gave them four good reasons. Four reasons why. One in verse one. They were, these believers were urged to live godly to please God. Of course, people live in a variety of ways for a variety of reasons. Some to please the in crowd, some to please their parents, some to please themselves, but Paul appealed to an even higher responsibility that these believers might live in such a way that no matter who else was watching, so even behind those closed doors, the invisible but ever-watching God would have no cause to be ashamed of them. Then in verses 2 to 3, it's clear that Paul expected them to walk in a holy way to obey God. It's funny how we've completely reversed God's wills and plans in relation to sexuality. Will and plans that have always been clear and unambiguous from the beginning. One man, one woman within the context of marriage. But now to say that to the world will not only get you laughed at, it could also get you imprisoned. Gone are the days when God's commandments about sexual immorality are seen as old-fashioned. Now such teaching is apparently dangerous, divisive and harmful. But what Paul writes here is simply in keeping with the whole of the scriptures where God continually warns us against sexual immorality and urges us to be obedient in these matters no matter how low the standards are around us. In verses 4 to 5, tell us to walk in a way, a godly way, to glorify God. Verse 4, he gives the instruction, each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so what Paul does here is magnify the principle he laid down in the previous verse. No sexual immorality. Walking in holiness. What does that mean then? He says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. There's a contrast there. Did you see it? Do it this way, not like you see going on all around you. Control your own body. Do it this way. Gain mastery over it. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, but in holiness and honour. Now, if you think it's bad today in this world, read some accounts of first century Rome, what was going on in Paul's day. The people he is writing to, who are people who have come out of all kinds of sexual immorality and all kinds of wickedness, and Paul is telling them you're going to stand out like a sore thumb in society around you when you start living for Jesus. Isn't that so contemporary, so today for us? Isn't this exactly what we find in society around us as we look at it? Doesn't it describe perfectly in the passion of lust? Everything that is calculated to arouse a sexual 
lust within us, in our advertising, in our music, in our movies. These things are dangerous. They, they can lead us into sin through the eye gate. And we need to be discerning. Paul says, you're surrounded by this. This is how it turns out. See, if a believer does not walk in holiness and falls into some sin, then what happens? Not only does the believer suffer the consequences of that sin, but God is robbed of the glory that he would normally receive. And so God's command is to control our bodies and be different from unbelievers who do not think about controlling their bodies and give no glory to God. And then verses 6 to 8 tell us to walk in a holy way to avoid the judgment of God. Of course, God is no respecter of persons and sin among his people is still sin. It is not sin... It is not that sin in our lives is different from sin in the lives of people who are unbelievers. In fact, sin in our lives is much worse. It's not excusable. It's worse, as verse 6 warns us. And the whole context is still about sexual sin in the lives of believers here. From Genesis to Revelation, when you read the scriptures, God singles out sexual sin as one of the key evidences of who we belong to. Put it more simply, eternity is at stake in your bedroom. You may think that this is a bit over the top. You may think, as the world will do, well, what does God, why does God care so much about these things? But they reflect his good standard from the beginning. They tell us the reason and the purpose that God had in marriage from the very start. And we need to heed these warnings that God supplies with this so for us so we can know how to walk in a godly way. And why? The bottom line is this. It's not just for our sake. It's for God's sake. For if we do not walk in holiness, then we cast a shadow upon the gospel and we become poor reflections of who we really are and what kind of God we serve. It's for the sake of his name and not our names that we are instructed to walk in that narrow path of purity. We all know something of what happens when it comes to light, that a professing believer has sinned grievously. It not only reflects on them, but it reflects upon our God, whom they serve and represent. Secondly, a little bit shorter, in verses 9 to 10, uh, Paul speaks about how to walk in harmony, godliness in church life. There's a clear transition from verse 8 on holiness to verse 9 on love and it's a transition that makes sense. See, Paul has just been telling us that we ought to do our brothers no wrong, which means in turn we ought to do our brothers what is right. We need to love the brethren and we shouldn't forget that there's that word for love here that's important. You may have heard that the Greeks had four words for love and all of them have their place in life. There's eros, which is physical or sexual love. There's storge, which is family love. 
There's agape, which is unconditional love, and there's philia, which is the word that Paul translates, uh, Paul word Paul uses here, which is translated brotherly love. It's the love that we as believers should have for one another and for other believers. It's the love that surpasses family ties and creates new family ties. Because in Christ we are members of the same family. We are members of one another. We are children of the one Father. We are saved through the work of the one Spirit for faith in the one Saviour of the world. So it ought to be evident, shouldn't, shouldn't it, if not prominent, that love is the watchword that describes us. Think of love for the brethren in this light. Does a fish have to be taught how to swim? Does a dog have to learn how to bark? No, these are inherent in them by nature. So also because we have God's nature within us, when we become his children and that nature is dominated by love, then love is the expression of that nature within us. The question we ask ourselves Not only do we love the brethren, but are we doing that more and more? Is our love for one another increasing? And is it evident to the world around us? For if it isn't, then we haven't yet got the right to say we've made it in this department. Rather, it's for the sake of the gospel that harmony is the goal that harshness and bitterness that hinder the progress of the gospel are avoided, as we heard from Ephesians chapter 4. All those attitudes that we can put into place which encourage the growth of love. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells the story of a prostitute who had shared her terribly painfully lo- painful life story with her with him Yancy asked her if she'd ever considered to going to a church in her search for meaning and purpose and to deal with the issues before her to make new friends and to seek help and her words were cutting but truthful she said why ever would i want to go there they just make me feel worse about myself. The comment may be uninformed, I'll grant that. But let's accept the comment for what it is and do something about making sure that it wouldn't be said of us. Thirdly and finally, in relation to the world around us, verses 11 to 12 call us to walk in honesty It's worth knowing that in the context of the Greek world in which these people lived, these Thessalonians, the Greeks in general, hated, despised manual labour. They hated work. In fact, the very reason they had slaves was because they hated the prospects of physical work so much. And unfortunately, this attitude had rubbed off onto some of the new believers who also got a little bit mixed up with the idea of the second coming of Jesus. In fact, they got so mixed up that many of them laid down their tools and refused to work, thinking, well, what's the point of working 
What's the point of building this house or whatever it was when Jesus is about to return and that would end the world, thus creating huge problems for themselves and for their families and the wider church family simply because if they weren't working they were not earning and therefore not able to pay their bills to support their families and being a poor witness to the world around them. So Paul wanted them to work through this and told them in no uncertain terms that while he had every expectation that Jesus would return, in the meantime, these believers were to make it their aim to work, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the reputation of the gospel. See, work isn't a curse. You might not want to get up and go to work, but it's a blessing. God gave work to Adam to do before the fall, not after the fall. It just got harder after the fall. The fall only meant that work involves sweat and tears. But work was not the curse of the fall. Therefore, it's the responsibility of God's people to work hard at whatever God gives us to do with a balanced view, working as though Jesus may never return, but working as though the day of his return could be tomorrow. And again, it's for the sake of the gospel, the way that we work and the way that we walk, that the clear message of the gospel not be drowned out by actions and attitudes that seemingly contradict it. And then as we note the instruction of verse 11, which is on the screen, it was Paul's desire that these believers might prove to be the kind of people who do not generate problems or conflict in the lives of others, who keep their noses out of business that does not affect them, living the kind of life that would make the gospel attractive to outsiders and not off-putting. Well, seeing as we began by thinking about famous athletes, let's close with the testimony of one famous, famous athlete, not an Aussie, but a Brit, a Christian man, whose story, no doubt, You've heard from the 1924 Olympics in which he won gold in the 200 metres after refusing to run in the 100 metre event because it was held on the Lord's Day, Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell became a missionary to China and left a more lasting legacy of people converted to Christ than any gold medal he ever won. Anyway, there's a quote from him that seems to fit well into this theme today of walking and growing and doing these things more and more. He wrote this, You will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. You will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. That pretty much sums up what Paul is getting at. We're to live a godly life, we're to abstain from these forms of sin, we're to live a harmonious life by loving the brethren, we're to live an honest life by giving ourselves to work, but for what reason? What is the reason? So that we might know more of God, who promises that we will know more of him when we seek him and walk in his ways and when we do that more and more, 
as Paul bids us to do here, we will show to the world more and more the wonder of the gospel message that saves us, the grace that we've been given and have not earned. See, there is no time in the Christian life to stand still. We mustn't ever get to the point where we think the level of our godliness or our love or our witness or our righteousness in practice is good enough. We need to do what we are called to do and do it more and more. See how verse 1 and verse 10 acts as kind of bookends to these verses. More and more. We are to excel in these things. It's like what Peter says in his second letter, first chapter. For this very reason, make every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection and love, with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, this is 5 to 8. There's your more and more. We need to keep on keeping on. We need to keep on striving. We need to keep on excelling. We need to do as Paul said in Colossians, with all the energy that he powerfully works within me, That's the kind of response to make to what God has done for you. That's the kind of growth that will show you to be mature in Christ. And so we face this challenge of doing these things more and more. C.T. Studd once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's a challenge in itself. But so is the challenge of proving to be living examples of that which we claim to be and claim to believe with the proof being seen in the more and more in your life and mine. Are you up for that challenge? Let's pray that we will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you with grateful thanks, we come to know and to note that your word extends us and tells us not to be satisfied with how we are doing, how fast we're running or how good our progress. For any progress we've made is simply because you, by your spirit, have helped us to grow in our sanctification so that we become more and more like Christ. And yet we hear this morning the responsibility. We know that it's a two-way thing. We work hard at our salvation, at showing we are Christ's, and yet you work also within us to refine us and to make us more and more like him. We're grateful that we're on this road 
thankful that we've been taken from the path that was leading to a a place we did not want to go further and further away from your loving kindness. So encourage us. It's a narrow path. It's a hard path. It's a path filled with many distractions, many temptations. But keep us on that narrow path we pray. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. And do this, we pray, as we ask for a closer walk with you, as we head in the direction you are pointing us to become more and more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.